Welcome to Mac and Cheese Music Podcast with your hosts, Brian DeHart. Hey, Bruno, we've got another great podcast today. Nice work, Einstein. Art could come in many forms, like in wine and food. Oh, yeah. I don't know about you, Bruno, but I ain't missing many meals. Obviously. Today's Mac and Cheese Music Podcast guest is Thomas Price. What a great guy. Thomas is a master sommelier and adjunct professor at the Auburn University College of Human Science. The dude abides. If you are in pursuit of mastery and excellence, stay tuned. We're going to be discussing focus and concentration of effort. Whatever it is you're trying to attain is an expression of your own individual art. As we work towards these things, the goal is to become a linchpin in our chosen endeavors. Hey, babe. Russ never sleeps. All the music spots on today's podcast were produced here at Mac and Cheese Music Studios. Here we go. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Today's guest on Mac and Cheese Music Podcast is Thomas Price. Thomas is a master sommelier and also adjunct professor at the Auburn University College of Human Sciences. He is also working with the Horst Schultz School of Hospitality. The new concept is the 1856 restaurant. Is that correct? Did I get that all right? That is That is all right. Good, good. I just wanted to start the conversation off since the podcast is about art. I wanted to get some definitions of art here out on the table before we start the conversation. Sure. I was impacted greatly by Seth Godin's book, Lynchpin. And his definition of art is this. Art is a personal gift that changes the recipient. The medium doesn't matter. The intent does. Art is a personal act of courage, something one human does that creates change in another. Art is an expression or application of human creative skill and imagination, typically in a visual form, such as painting or sculpture, producing works to be appreciated primarily for their beauty and emotional power. I'm hitting it on all nine cylinders, all 12 cylinders right now, right? Yep. Art is, isn't only a painting. Art is anything that's a creative passionate and personal and great art resonates with the viewer or the participant not only with the creator that's from the oxford encyclopedia and wikipedia says art is a diverse range of human activity and resulting product that involves creative or imaginative talent expressive of technical proficiency beauty emotional power and conceptual ideas and my first question with you is that you came into my recording studio, you laid down some really great vocal tracks, and that prompted me to understand that you are an artist at the very core of your being. That's very kind of you to say. Do you want to do you want to talk about that a bit? Well, I, I think I think Brian, what I'd say, and thank you for for the compliment. I remember that like it was yesterday. It was really fun. <laughs> is you was the song I remember. So, so I would say that it's to me it's an amalgam of all those definitions that that you just gave. It, it's I guess I do consider myself an artist in that I work with my heart and my soul. My brain is the 
vehicle that lets me express it. Right. That sounded heavy. I haven't rehearsed this at all, but, but that's, you're not supposed I, to. That's, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's I guess that's why it's a podcast, but that's yeah. exactly what I'd say is the heart and soul that's put into whatever enterprise, whether it's singing vocals or, or teaching people or creating a wonderful service experience for a guest that they're not going to get anywhere else starts with your heart and soul. And then your brain hopefully is what filters how you express it in a way to whoever you're trying to reach so that, so that it affects them in, in hopefully the same way that you're trying to. So the one point that I left out from Seth Doden, and I think this really applies to you and we'll talk more about your position and how you got there. His question to people is, are you indispensable? You, you are in a one of a kind position that actually has anybody ever heard of this occurring before? That's a great question. I'm sure in some hospitality programs around the world, and there are many, many, that's one thing that I found out is I didn't realize that just in the United States alone, there's so many hospitality programs. I'm heading up the HBCU and, and kind of English as a second language universities that, that might not have the same opportunities in hospitality. But what I'm finding is that there's great hospitality programs everywhere. Michigan State, Florida State, in addition to all the ones that we think of, Johnson and Wales and um, University of Central Florida and the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, but to to answer your question, I don't think so. I don't think there, well, there's certainly never been a master sommelier that was employed by a university and a hospitality management company because I have a dual role in terms of how I'm compensated, blah, blah, blah. But I guarantee that having someone hands-on training in wine as opposed to just teaching a class on it is a very, very new paradigm in the world of, of beverage education. So let's talk about how you got there. Yeah. So um, obviously you and I worked together for, for many years at the Metropolitan Grill. I was there for the entire, well, just to interrupt, we've known each other for 20 years. Yes. <laughs> Can you believe oh, that? Dude, it's crazy. <laughs> It's crazy. And I and the cool thing about the Met, I have so many, I think about the place every day and I, I so many of my formative wine experiences came there, but I was there the whole time from intro all the way through my master sommelier for the 10 years I was there, which, which is really cool. And, and a testament to, I don't know what the, the, the wine culture that, you know, Jimmy Donovan and David Coyle and you and Lance and everybody had created there. But also just it was it was a place to really learn about how wine affected guests experiences in a super positive way. But originally, I'm a restaurant guy. I've been doing it my whole life. Started when I was 13. I'm from uh, Juneau, Alaska, originally um, moved to uh, Seattle, eventually did everything in the restaurant business, the chef track the bartender track, all of those things, um, owned and operated my own restaurant for 10 years, part, part of it while I was at the Met, which, and while I was studying for my MS exam, which was a busy time. I'm sure you remember the glazed look in my eyes that was there for two or three years. Um, but basically, you know, everybody, I would just put a bow on, on your question by saying this. Everybody asked me, you know, how long did it take you to become a master sommelier. And from when I took intro to when I passed my MS exam, it took about nine years. But what I've started to say 
is it's the culmination of my life's experience in this industry. I had to use everything that I knew and remembered from when I was a dishwasher at 13 in Juneau, from when I owned and operated my own restaurant in my 40s, from when I got the only job I've ever been fired from when I got fired from a Shakey's in Anchorage, Alaska, when I was 15 years old. I think I ate too many pieces of roasted chicken or something. I don't know what it was. Um <laughs> But but all of the food smells, different service standards, all of those things, that's that was that's kind of the way I look at the at how I got my certification and how I got to this point. Then I was at Jackson Family Wine. So I left the Met and was in uh, national director of sales education and was coming down to Auburn, Alabama to teach the intro courses. I, uh, when I had a stint on the board of directors for the quartermaster sommeliers, the university programs were in danger of dying because there was nobody really running them and the, the master sommeliers weren't that passionate. It's always on a Saturday and Sunday. I was able to arrange some compensation and give the, the program some life. I took over Purdue, which is the legacy program. They started in 2001 with the Quartermaster Sommeliers. Auburn was the second. I think they started in 04, 05. Cal Poly Pomona, University of South Carolina, and the University of Delaware. So as I started to immerse myself in running the uh, Quartermaster Sommeliers intro program with these universities for their hospitality students, I developed a really strong relationship here at Auburn. And as they started to build this new facility, uh, Hans von der Ryden, um, who's the managing the owner of Ithaca Hospitality Partners, and Dr. Martin O'Neill, who runs the uh, hospitality program. I, I just developed a friendship with them, and, and I watched this building go from a hole in the ground to, wow, there's a crane there, wow, there's two cranes there, because I was coming back every year. And Hans uh, eventually offered me this hybrid position, and I was was only too happy to accept. That's a lot of information that I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, so that's how all that's how that's how I got connected with this university was by I mean obviously education is a passion of mine, but I started by coming down and teaching these intros and developing a relationship. I mean, I have a great relationship with Purdue, Cal Poly, University of South Carolina. One of our our other master sommeliers, Eric Hemer, is a Delaware alumnus, so he does the Delaware course. But that's how this kind of idea germinated. I think the success of any organization or any individual is based upon the network which they establish. Thousand percent. I it's 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 amazing to I think there's people out there, Brian, that that would would debate that or say no, you could, but it, it's just it, there's no way they would have created this position for me essentially if I hadn't developed a relationship with them. The students that I taught down here for the eight years I was coming down all gave me very positive reviews, you know, and it's different teaching. I would delineate this pretty clearly. Teaching college kids is way different than teaching a normal intro for the quartermaster sommeliers, because when you teach the, and it's the same course, we do our standard intro, but when I go to Miami or I go to Atlanta or I go to Seattle to teach an intro, that's not a college affiliated course. Everybody in the room wants to become a sommelier. When I do it at a college, it's kind of a check the box. Oh, I want to learn a little bit about wine. Wow, the certification might be cool to have. But, <clears throat> you know, when I do a normal class, probably 20 of the people in the room want to become master sommeliers. When I do a college class, nobody in the room really wants to become master sommelier. But so you have to change your, it's the same material, but you have to change your delivery to, to reach them kind of where, where they're at. 
in their lives? Well, the program itself is very successful. What is it, 81% placement upon graduation? That's Yeah, I mean, the, the program, the, the relationships that the, that the universities developed, Auberge du Soleil is a big partner. We have kids that are just doing a little of everything. We send, uh, we send students to Augusta to work for masters every year. I have happily started uh, chaperoning and working with them over there. A lot of wineries, Stoller, Opus One, you know, these these students all get a chance to intern at places that are just amazing. That's partially from the relationships the university has, but it also just shows the dedication of, of these partners that work with us that, that see the future of the hospitality industry. It's like, wow, you graduated from Auburn and you want to be an event planner or you want to be the GM of a big hotel or you want to do whatever they offer the students these opportunities to uh to intern learn and then move their career forward in all the different ways that that this that this awesome industry allows right we we preach you don't have to be passionate about food and wine on the plate specifically maybe you're good at math maybe you want to run you know the catering arm of a business where you know you knowing how good the sauce tastes is very little to do with you being successful. It's how to manage a large group of people, meet and, and deliver things in a timely and efficient manner. If you're a salesperson, there's a sales component that we try to teach. So obviously the appreciation of food and wine is the main and underlying goal, but we try to, I think, tell the students that there are so many different arenas in the hospitality industry that you can go into I think people assume, oh, you want to be a chef or you, and a lot of our kids do want to be chefs and that's great. But we try to open up their minds to the industry as a whole and how many different pathways there are in business for them to be successful. back to networking really quickly what were the priorities and the process that, that you used to establish the network that you have you know i didn't really have priorities per se i, I mean this is going to sound so pollyanna but i i just being nice to people and 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 trying to do as good a job as i as i could every opportunity i got i i did for me it, it was a big deal to teach at a university right i, I never attended college it was something that that had always fascinated me it fascinated me to give students the opportunity, especially with our facility here at, at the Rain Center in Auburn, we give them the book learning and we also give them the hands-on learning. And I had all hands-on learning <laughs> and no book learning, right? Like I didn't know how to cost out a wine list until I owned my own restaurant or slightly before that. You know, I didn't know about a BEO, a banquet and event order and what that kind of entailed and how that 
is a crucial part of the communication of doing an event at a, at a restaurant or a hotel. We're trying to equip the, the students with this knowledge right when they walk out of the door. They're going to have a lot of learning to do because this industry is vast and varied and challenging in, in so many ways. We're just trying to give them a, a really awesome blueprint that they can take with them once they graduate to, to plug into whatever segment of the industry they choose to, to enter. I have some I have some really great questions for you, but I really don't want to jump ahead. You've probably got some great stories that you could tell about, <laughs> your, about your tenure. Let's just go to, off in that direction a little bit. What is about some, about being here at uh, at Auburn? Oh no, just about your journey, man. I mean, ah, what, yes. What is, yeah. What What are some of the funniest things that you've encountered on, on your trip? There are just so many, and that that's one of the things I love about the restaurant business. It it has this kind of Damon Runyon sort of rough and tumble kind of side that is just always going to be a part of what we do. I mean, if you stay at the Four Seasons or the Ritz Carlton or whatever, it's so buttoned up. But behind the scenes, it's it's a bunch of people trying to execute something that's very, very hard to do, which is make other people happy that are paying a lot of money to be made happy. And their standards just are are challenging. It, they, they should be. A couple of highlights. I mean, running the line at a restaurant in Anchorage, Alaska, when I was 18 years old, I was the lead cook. It was Harry's Restaurant. And we used to do, it was mostly, it was like a Red Robin burger concept. Big restaurant. And we do, you know, 300 lunches in a day. And my broiler in Juneau, cook. In Juneau, Alaska, 300 No, in, this was in Anchorage. Oh, this Anchorage, sorry. Uh, yeah. This was in Anchorage. Yeah, no, uh, Juneau, Juneau might do 300 lunches a day with every restaurant counted. But uh, my broiler cook, Eddie Deal, I'll never forget. This is 40 years ago. Um, was arrested on the line with like 70 burgers cooking and four steaks and four saute pans going, cuffed and stuffed on the line at Harry's in the middle of lunch rush. I'm like, officer, can you just leave him here for another 20 minutes to help me get through the rest? He's like, nope. And, I, and Eddie was a good guy. I was like, Eddie, I'm really sorry. He's like, sorry, bro. I'm like, anyway, that's that's pretty, the mid-lunch arrest was pretty good. Uh, I mean, all kinds of different guest interactions that some are, some are just wonderful. Some are just comical i mean you know at next level restaurant both really good and really bad just just kind of crazy experiences i will single out a really good one because uh, i don't want this to turn into bloopers i love i love this uh i love this question but i have so many our dear departed friend david coyle i could i could tell 10 stories about him but i don't know if they're podcast they're, they're not they're not <laughs> podcast exactly but that's fine and that's yeah. fine. I will tell I will tell a wonderful story uh, about this industry that kind of encapsulates it for me. So when I was with Jackson Family Wines, my job as National Director of Wine Education was to travel all over the country, do events at restaurants, do events at country clubs, present to distributors, take newer salespeople out in the car with me during the day and kind of show them the ropes of how to talk to wine accounts and sell a little of everything. But at the Capitol Grill in, it was in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm doing a wine event there. And, you know, I get up and speak. There was like 40 people. And then I present the wines. There was a bunch of Jackson family wines, a bunch of Cabernets that night. It was really good stuff. It's like Lacoya and Cardinal, et cetera, et cetera. There's collectors at the restaurant. But I start my, my comments and I always try to make them localized. And I said, man, I'm in Kansas City for the first time. Barbecue is my favorite thing to cook. 
I'm here in one of the havens of it, and I can't wait to try Arthur Bryant's and Oklahoma Joe's, and I mentioned all these ones. So I finished the event. I just kind of tried to, you know, land a couple points with the crowd, but it's true. I love I love barbecue. I'm going to start to grill in a minute here. And the managing partner, so essentially the GM, toward the end of the meal, taps me on the shoulder, and she's got this huge plastic bag, and she said – Hey, we couldn't help hearing or hearing your passion for barbecue. There's a new place called, uh, what's it called? It was called Q, Q31. I'm getting the name wrong. There's a brand new barbecue place. And they, and they said, we sent out for a bunch of barbecue for you to take back to your hotel room. I mean, I was so blown away by their hospitality when I was there to be hospitable. I do. I have a ton of stories like that from a different, a bunch of different restaurants and settings, but that one really stood out to me. I'm there selling stuff and they took the time and put the thought into picking up on something that I talked about and following up on it an hour and a half later when the when the meal was done. That was cool. That's very awesome. So as an educator, what are some of your highlights? Uh, I seem to remember you had a stint in Seoul. Yes, that was that was a that was an amazing one. So I I got to go with the quartermaster sommeliers. I got to go to Seoul. Uh, South Korea to teach an intro and a certified sommelier exam. And these are something I, I want to name check Melissa Monasoff, who's the uh, education director for the Court of Master Sommeliers. I was on the board of directors at the time, and I was the education committee chairman. So Melissa and I worked very closely together. She's very passionate about Korean culture. She's actually taught herself the language. She's she, And this, this all full, full circle the story in a second. But we got to go over. We give this exam in English. This, this is just, we don't have the resources to do it in Korean. We're working towards that, but that again, we're very mindful of changing the parameter because what if a Korean or a Korean American person who English isn't their first language took the test and wasn't successful when we gave it in English and all of a sudden we're giving it in Korean. I mean, it's us trying to get better, but we're super mindful of it. So the exam is, is still given in English so I got to go over there with a group of master sommeliers and just had a, an, an amazing eye-opening. I, I had actually been to Seoul before, but this this was to go over there as a teacher and, and, a, and an exam proctor was, was just a real bucket list kind of thing. I knew it was going to be neat, but once we were there doing it, it really sunk in. And then to full circle that, this was probably probably 10 years ago that I did that. And and now thinking back, ah, uh, yeah, eight years ago. And at the advanced sommelier exam that I was just at in Phoenix, Arizona, the top scorer was a Korean woman who was at one of the exams that that Melissa and I and, and the other group taught eight years ago. The top scorer overall. That's got to make you feel really good. It's so cool, and and it you know, and I, I I to be honest, I wasn't like you know following her journey or any of that. I, I because I also am the chairman of the board for Som Foundation, which is a charity organization, and we hand out kind of achievement checks with the Rudd Winery that we work with, and I always do the presentation at the advanced exam, and I was like, oh my gosh. She's the high scorer. This is going to be so cool. So it was that was pretty neat. Let's talk about the charitable organizations that you're involved with. You just mentioned one. Yeah. So that's, that's the main one. It's called Psalm Foundation. It's a 501c3. Uh, I've been involved with it for probably 10 years, but I was originally director of scholarships and then got uh, kind of indoctrinated as chairman of the board. So I run the organization now. 
you know, you've known me for a long time. 501c3 management and CEO type qualities are not something I'm particularly long on, but this organization means the world to me. We provide scholarships and we fund enrichment trips for people. You know, we're sending a bunch of people to Italy with the Bonfi Winery, great partner of ours. We sent a bunch of people to, to uh, Southern Oregon, the Rogue Valley, because they wanted to open people's eyes. We do a trip to Paso. We're doing a trip to Etna at uh, Texom, which is a big sommelier conference. We, us and Santa Margarita sponsor two people to come to Texom and get immersed in wine. Um, and then we, we, we hand out a bunch of money endowed by, by wineries and wine companies for scholarships. You know, it's like, like the, this, the, the three people who got the Rudd scholarship at the advanced exam, they're now master sommelier candidates and the three top scorers get a check for $5,000. Boom, here you go, um, which is so generously funded by by the Rudd family. But Sound Foundation is the engine that that's run through. So I, I do run that organization. Um, Emily Gold, our COO, does most of the work. I, I weigh in on policy and kind of culture-based decisions. We've switched our fundraising model for anyone who's listening. Um, we went from, we, we got created by the donation of a, of a $1.5 million wine cellar 10 years ago. The wine is gone. So a lot of my, um, and most of it was delicious. I we used it. We, we used it. We used it for good. That's it's really how we how we generated this organization. But we used a bunch of the wine to to do fundraisers and all that kind of stuff. But now, this has been a big challenge with all my free time. Right, this has been a big challenge for me to figure out how to shift our fundraising model to a standard. You know, asking people for money. Not what I'm good at. Not what I like to do, but the cause is so singular and, and worthy that I'm I'm happy to do it. So that's that's my little Psalm Foundation pitch. Anybody knows a distributor or a wine company when we're we're out there working. I just did an event in Atlanta where we did kind of a burgundy tasting for a bunch of the sommeliers that competed to find whatever village the wines came from. Uh, Crown Distributing donated the wines. The Education uh, Trust of, of Burgundy donated the really cool wines that we tested the sommeliers on. So we do all kinds of stuff and we ask donors to give us 500 to 1,000 bucks a ticket to try to raise money. It, it's a really, really awesome organization that really tries to provide opportunities for people who might not get otherwise. That's really super cool. You mentioned that you had free time. I don't think you have free time. I don't have a lot of free time. <laughs> this leads conveniently, and this is really close to your heart, I know. Next question is based on Robert Greene's book, Mastery. And the message of the book is to gain mastery, you need to listen to the calling in your mind, active training and learning under the guidance of a mentor during an apprenticeship, and finally, develop independent and creative thinking. The problem is overcoming our hunger for magical shortcuts, and we want the easy route. Hundred percent. And you had it. You had a really interesting process during your quest for master sommelier, and I'd like you to share that. Yeah, I mean, and 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 to to that point, I, I think I, I agree with everything that gentleman said. I, I'm embarrassed that I have never read that book or this is the first I've heard of it because we're not qu questioning whether you have a literary background or no no but I, I like I was reading I, I was reading every book I could self-help from a self-help perspective to help me with the exam because I was really struggling at master level but a, a couple things stand out yes 
a mentor is so crucial, but tying into that easy pathway thing, I had a couple of people who helped me out. Shane Bjornholm was great. Seattle Master Sommelier, he's the exam director for the court, but I wasn't calling him up every day. You know, mentorship, as, as I've sort of delved into being a mentor pretty actively, right? Teaching at a college, being on the board of directors, blah, 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 running an educational foundation. I think most people tying into the easy pathway thing, they think that if they get a mentor who has been successful, that that's, they're all set. <laughs> and that's not the case. The mentor is just a tiny, tiny bit of your attempt at mastering a topic or a subject or a series of subjects. You have to do the work. I think that a lot of people sort of lose that because it's hard. There's 279 master sommeliers on the planet since 1965. It's a hard test. It's supposed to be hard. We have changed a lot of our transparency internally in the Court of Master Sommeliers and the way we try to give feedback. We're, we're trying to, it used to be very kind of a closed society. We're trying to open it up. That said, it does not make the test any easier. It does not make the level of knowledge, commitment, time invested, and mind over matter, game day attitude change. A mentor cannot help you with those things. The test is more difficult now than it's ever been. Isn't that correct? I don't or know. Expansive. That, I'd, I'd say. I'd say. I'd say this humbly stated. There is way more to know now because there's way more wine regions and way more up and coming things. And we have coffee. And we have tea. Spirits are a very explosive category. We have to know a lot about spirits. Beer is 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 blowing up. Obviously, most of it is about wine, but. Conversely, the access to information, I say this to my students all the time. I get people who look at me, like I'll use this for example. Uh, I'm using a beautiful wine as a, as a $15 supplement on the, on the tasting menu with the beef course. I've got Duck, uh, Duckhorn's Project Canvasback Cabernet as the standard wine. For 15 bucks extra, I'll pour you a three ounce pour of Domaine de la Genasse Chateauneuf du Pop 2020. Just a stunning example of Chateauneuf. Some of the young people that I work with are like, well, how domain de la what? Chateauneuf de what? And I'm like, you guys, take out your handheld computer and Google, just put in the word Janasse, J-A-N-A-S-S-E. The information just pops right up. So there is much more access. There's much more access. But there's more, more information you need to have, but the access to it is so easy. I don't have to... It would take me, I'm looking at my shelf of wine books over there. It would take me, if I'd never heard of Domaine de la Genasse and I didn't have access to the internet or my computer, it would take me half a day to figure that out with phone calls to people in the wine business. Oh, you know, hey, I'm calling Sabato in New York. Have you ever heard of Domaine de la Genasse? Nope. Or maybe, yeah. It's a, it's a, I think it's a push. I think it's a push. I, I think that the exam has not intentionally been made harder. There, there's just way more information. And I think generally people are prepared. Everyone everyone that's taken a master sommelier exam, nobody's shown up and winged it. They Everybody knows how serious it is. You put it, you only get to do it once a year and you put in so much time in your life. I mean, dude, you watched me through the whole thing. I was I was a disaster. Um, well, you certainly didn't show it. Ah, well, thank you. I was, I was crying on the inside. Oh, I bet. Um, 
Um, but but it, it becomes a, a situation where, and this is what I teach and I mentor to. I've, I've got a guy coming uh, over here tomorrow to taste. He's sitting his master sommelier exam. I think he wants me to kind of tell him how to pass the exam. And I'm more, when I mentor everyone at all of our exam levels or students at Auburn or whoever it may be, my thing is more, it's about your mindset. If you put in the time, then then nobody needs to, I can't study theory for you. I can't study the classic archetypes of the wines of the world and taste 60 wines a week for you. But what I can help you with is how to get your mental approach ready for the hardest test you, you've ever taken in your life. That's what it is to me. That's what I had to do with myself. time. I mean, the first two times I sat the exam, I was so devastated because I had put in the time. I was ready. I'd get in that room and just, I wouldn't choke, but I, I wasn't ready to be great. It took me the first two years that I sat the exam, I didn't get anything, even though I worked my ass off. And then the third year I finally started to go, it's, it's not even a, I got this or I belong to this group of people. That's not how I approached it. And I think that's one of the things, the impediments to people who study the MS exam, like I I can be one of these men or women. And it's like, of course you can, anyone can. That's, it's not a belonging thing. It's a, I am the best in the world today. That's, that's hard for people to wrap their heads around, to just go, I'm, I mean, it's a, I use a lot of sports analogies to, to try to mentor people. I mean, there's golfers, whether they're at the club and they're 20 handicappers or they're pros who can make a five footer, whether it's for five bucks or 5 million bucks. And there's golfers that just can't. You have to become the person who trusts your process so much and trust the work you put in that you're not wondering about what if this doesn't work out. You're in control of the whole narrative. You have to be, or you won't be successful. And are you gonna still fail with that mindset? Sure, that's where your head has to be. If you hope you're going to be successful at, at something like this, you have no shot. You just have no shot. And if you know you're going to be successful, <laughs> you have a better shot, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be successful the first time or two. So you had some very specific steps that you took on the, your third round. You want to share? I did. So I, I switched my, I was kind of following the herd in terms of like, everybody was like, oh man, you got to draw maps. Like I've got Jancis's, atlas out and i'm drawing a map of trentino and putting the key points in it you know and all the while looking at what's the Teraldigo grape all about and what are the subs of pinot grigio and all those things which you need to do but i found that i, I did that for two years and i would get in the exam room and the ms exam for those who who were listening 
the theory is oral, so it's not a written test. So you get asked a question or a three-parter or whatever it may be, and you have to answer it. And if you don't answer it, you don't get to go back to it once you remember it 10 questions later, it's gone. Your ability to recall information needs to be swift and accurate. So I wasn't able, visually, this is what I found. I wasn't a visual learner. So I started recording everything, reading. I would read, okay, Trentino is in Northern Italy. They grow a lot of Chardonnay. The main red grape is Merlot. There's a cool red grape called Terraldigo. They make a, most of the Pinot Grigio that's grown in Italy. Big producers are, you know, Ferrari and Mezza Corona, whatever it may be. And I would record that and listen to it. And that's when stuff started sticking for me. I was putting it on compact discs. Remember those, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls? <laughs> um, you know, I'd record it into my Apple computer on GarageBand. And then I would make a compact disc of it. And then I would listen to it on my way into the Met or put it in my disc man when I took a walk, listen to all of the stuff. And I I mean, the I had probably 70 compact discs with 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 me talking and various information. And, and I was hesitant to do it because despite what people listening may think, I do not like the sound of my own voice. And, 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 and it was, it was really, really challenging to keep listening to myself in my own head over and over, say these things. However, and this, I didn't even think about this till after I passed the exam. I was like, maybe that was the, for me, that was the best way to do it. I couldn't draw on a, a draw on a, a a photographic image in my mind. I just heard my voice telling me what I needed to know, and it made it easier for me to recall. That's just, it's just me. That I'm some people. I've talked to a bunch of fellow master sommeliers. Some people did it that way. Some people were like, "You're crazy. I could never do it that way." <laughs> like I had to. I had to look at it. I drew a map, and I automatically remember it. I'm like, "That that wasn't me." Well, I think that you had an appeal to your subconscious. Yeah. Oh, there was a lot of people living in my head at that point in time, bro. It, it was, it just, it's for me, that was the only way that I could, that I could do this. I, and again, I think of the mistake a lot of people make specific to the theory component of the MS exam is if you want to show up and just look cool and fire off the answer to what's the minimum alcohol by volume for Hermitage Rouge, 10.5. Next question, please. It, it don't work <laughs> like, you know, unless you're, Really, 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 really beautiful mind smart. It doesn't work like that. You got to grind. You got to think. You got to try to pull the answer out of your head. And whatever method you can do to do that is what works for you. Well, you know, you brought this up. I know that we had a quick conversation last night about what we were going to cover. But I love the way that you segued into mindset. Forgive me again for referencing another book, but this book is by Carol Dweck, and the name of it is Mindset. And the best basic premise of that is our mindset shapes whether we believe we can learn and change and grow or not. And individuals' abilities are set in stone in the fixed mindset. Growth and development are possible in the growth mindset. And people, which you just covered, people with a fixed mindset seek approval. Those with the growth mindset seek development. Amen to that, right? Yeah, I completely. That's that's. I mean, I've I've and and Brian, I've loved all the quotes that that you've and the and the book passages that you've read. But that one to me, 
that one's a little more spiritual and it is a little less kind of didactic and saying, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. But to me, that one might resonate the most out of all of them, because it's just like, if you want to memorize answers to questions and have those questions repeated to you, this ain't, this, this, this ain't your thing. This is a complete cause and effect. I need to know the why, and I need to say the why to get to the what. That's just kind of how, whether it's the wines in your glass or the questions that you're asked during service or specifically, especially the theory component where you, and, and, you know, and I found this out, actual thinking is really hard work. Like not, not just thinking like, what am I going to have for lunch? Or, oh, I've got, I just got double sat and I need to figure out how to manage my section. But like thinking about something that you're not expecting a question about. And that happens all the time in the MS exam where I'm like, wow, that's a good question. I always go back to the, to the what's the minimum alcohol by volume for Hermitage Rouge. I'm like, that is a really good, hard question. I have studied that. So I just go into my mode. I repeated. And, and again, I tried to slow the, the exam down and there is a time limit on it. But I think most people treat it like a trip to the dentist's office, right? Quicker you're done, quicker you're out of there. And, and I hate the dentist. I am, and, and the test situation is very much the same. But what I trained myself to do is answer every question the same way. And everyone would make fun of me, all my study buddies in Seattle. But I just developed a system. I put my hands out on the table. I would look up here because that's just my happy space. I would not see the master sommeliers in front of me, three master sommeliers that are going to ask questions. They would ask a question. What is the minimum alcohol by volume for Hermitage Rouge? And I would look up here and I would look down and I would repeat the question. Every question. There's some easy ones, right? As with the level that I was at, there are some questions that I was like, I know the answer to that, but I'm going to do it the same way. What is the minimum alcohol by volume for Hermitage Rouge? And then I would think the hard part, especially a question like that. I mean, it's like, well, Syrah is kind of, you know, start from the top. Hermitage, and I'm processing this at laser speed in my mind. Hermitage is in the Rhone Valley in France. They are known for red wines based on Syrah, white wines based on Marzon and Rouge. They just asked me a question about Hermitage Rouge, the laws that were changed in France in 1935. Chateau de Pop was the first one. That's the highest alcohol at 12.5. Hermitage Rouge, you'd think Syrah was going to make a pretty high alcohol wine, but I seem to remember that it was lower than I thought it would be. I wanted to say 11 and a half. I was like, no, I remember it was really weird because it's a fairly warm climate and the grape produces higher alcohol wines, but it stuck out to me. And, and I'm, admittedly, I didn't guess, but I got down to it and I said 10.5%. And I was, I was right. That's where I think the process has to be as opposed to just going, well, I know the answer to that. And, and when I get an easy question, this is, this is actually my favorite, Greece, the country of Greece is gorgeous and I love it there. And it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. The food's great. The wine's great. But from a geographical perspective, studying it drove me crazy. So everything's an archipelago. Everything ends in an A or a KI. I just, I couldn't own that place. And so I'm like kind of stressing about Greece because I'm like, God, if they hit me with a bunch of Greece questions, I'm going to really struggle. Well, they asked me to, on that particular day which some people didn't know it, but for me, it was just one. 
what is the main white grape produced on the island of Santorini? And it's a Sirtico. I know it's six ways to Sunday. But I didn't go a Sirtico. I did the same process that I did with that really hard Northern Rhone question. I said, what, you know, up here, look down, repeat the question. What is the main white grape produced on the island of Santorini? I know it's a Sirtico, but let me think this through. Is, is there any weird kind of dessert wine that I might've forgot? Is there anything? No, it's a Sirtico. And then I'd say a Sirtico. I have my bottle of water, open the cap, drink it, put it back down, and I'm back up here again. Everyone made fun of me, man, but it was that's that's what I had to do. That's what I had to do. Well, you're a master and they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Ha, 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 he, he, he. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next coming season so we are super excited in 1856 uh culinary residence we have ford fry who is a southeast icon as a chef uh he owns like 25 restaurants down here chief among them he's his main uh kind of base is in atlanta where i think he owns like 12 restaurants but he owns restaurants in uh nashville charleston etc cetera, etc cetera. uh his main concepts are sort of southern seafood driven but he owns a really he's got a cool mexican concept he's got kind of an italianate thing he's doing so he's our guy but obviously he's a busy guy he can't be cooking every night with the students he was out with us so the way it kind of works is the chef in residence comes out gets everything set and dialed he is working with a guy who's invaluable to what we do here two guys uh anthony osborne who's a uh uh, master pastry chef trained in Lausanne, Switzerland, who's kind of the guy who liaises between the kitchen and the university. And then a guy named Chef Tom, uh, Thomas Baco Wang, who's our chef de cuisine. So he interprets what Ford wants him to do and goes from there, if that makes sense. But Ford's been out here. He's super involved. The menus are great. They're, they're pretty soulful. They're, they're, they're a little, our food last year was very cerebral, but it was fine. It was a great way to start and people loved it. Ford's food's a little more down to earth, um, but it's still, it's beautiful. I mean, we've got, and then I get to pair, I mean, you know, if you sit down for dinner with us in Auburn, Alabama, um, what's on the menu right now, Charles Mignon Brut Champagne from Epernay to start with. It comes with this kind of uh, fried bread with this beautiful butter and caviar situation to dip, second course. Jean-Marie Reverdy Sancerre with a beautiful snapper crudo, very simply dressed with some fruit and extra virgin olive oil and lemon juice. Uh, Lucia Chardonnay from Santa Lucia Highlands in uh, in Monterey goes with this beautiful uh, grouper that's kind of pan seared with this roasted heirloom tomato sauce. Uh, we go into 
uh, nudie, which is kind of a, a lighter, fluffier version of gnocchi, ricotta cheese and flour based, like a beautiful little poof ball of deliciousness uh, with uh, grana padano parmesan and a uh, truffle reduction sauce. I serve uh, barbaresco with that. <laughs> um, Pernodo, yeah, not a real. That one really stressed me out, right? Um, and then the uh, the entree is this beautiful spinalis uh, fat ca cap of the ribeye that they roast over this Japanese charcoal. Uh, comes with a like three times strained potato puree, veal demi, and I'm doing duck horn canvas back cab and the uh, chateau de pop. And then I've got a beautiful Madeira with uh, cheese and dessert course. So I mean, then that's an Auburn, bro. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty. That's pretty awesome. So you guys also do a lunch service as well. Is that we do a la carte lunch uh, Tuesday through Saturday, uh, eleven to two two o'clock. Probably stunning in and of itself. It's great. I mean, steak free, good burger, fish and oh, chips. Okay. It's, it's, not a, it's a. It's not quite as as elevated, but it's it. I, I mean, you know me, Brian. I I'd almost I love sitting down and having a multi course dinner, but. I'd much rather come in and order a couple of cool bottles and have everything on the lunch menu. That's kind of my personal dining style. Right, right. And so uh, tell me about your clientele there. It's it's everybody. It's a lot of university um, kind of administrators and teachers and professors. It's uh, a lot of Auburn folk. Um, it's a lot of younger people who are interested in seeing what we do. It's a lot of of kind of city fathers and mothers. Auburn Auburn is a very unique and awesome town. And from a university perspective, Auburn is the number one legacy university in the country, which means everybody who goes here is related to someone who went here or got married to someone who, when they went here or et cetera, et cetera, down the line. It's at 40%, which is astounding, right? Like 40% of the people that come to school here have some sort of connection already. Um, so that familial spirit really identifies kind of what, what the university is all about and, and people want to support everything that's, that's new with, with what's going on with the university. So it's a, it's a, it's, and you know, we get, we're getting ready to get into football season. I mean, we had the, uh, we had the uh, ESPN co uh, college game day basketball team in it's, it's it's pretty cool. So I always like to ask this question: What is the nearest and dearest thing to your heart? In terms of whatever, does it matter? That's a great question. I, I mean, keeping it rolling at, at this point, man. I mean, it, it's it, it's. I feel like I feel like the university and the and the health and human sciences program, the hospitality program. You know, we added a class because I, I teach hospitality, uh, beverage appreciation, hospitality 4,600. It was popular enough in my first year that they added a class. Um, I would like to name check uh, Dr. David Martin, who's been my, speaking of mentorship, he has been a huge mentor to me. He's got all three of his degrees from Auburn, bachelor, master, and PhD, all hospitality. And he's shown me, he's just taught me so much about the politics, but also just the X's and O's of, of running a college, a real college class. Cause I'm not just a guest lecturer. I mean, I'm doing it. So David, David's going to teach, uh, we're going to teach classes that run concurrently. We, we actually talked the other day about our, our curriculum. Um, so I really, the helping grow this program that believed in me 
is really important. Helping grow the restaurant is really important. And then, I mean, my three prong thing is, and then Psalm Foundation is so important to me. And that one has been the biggest challenge because like I said, I, I can teach, create content for a class. I can connect with students. I'm good at all those things. I'm good at being on the restaurant floor and serving wine and choosing wine and pairing wine with food. None of those things are outside my area of expertise, really. Running this nonprofit and, and making it successful is a, is a really is my third tip of the spear. I think Spears only have one tip. Third, the tip of the trident. <laughs> I don't know. But those are those those things, those from a from a professional perspective, Brian, those those are the things that are near and dear to me. Well, man, I've uh think that this was really a great interview. Thank you very much for being here. Of course. Yeah, I uh really like the way that you have embraced these concepts. I think they're crucial for anyone in whatever endeavor to implement the, the processes and the priorities that you spoke of today. I think it's, uh, as you said earlier, if you want to succeed at what you're doing, you got to believe that you're going to do it. You just can't wish your way there. You have to believe. And you can, and you can expect a mentor to, to, to turn a light on for you. You mentors can help. Mentors can can maybe the mentor's position is not to teach you how to achieve something. It's to give you insight that you might not have had into a way to better approach achieving it. And and I think that that's that's something that I I just I'm very super passionate about and just and just I try to mention it to to everybody I work with is is it's great I'm super happy to I, I I give a lot of my time and I'm not that's I'm happy to but I want I want everyone I work with to understand that that it's not given to I'm not going to tell you how to do it I can kind of show you how to do it but I'm more I'm more here to tell you how to wrap your head around it well, I'm with you, man. Okay. Thanks, Thank buddy. You. Thank you for taking your time. My pleasure, brother. Yeah. And uh, this is Mac and Cheese Music signing out. All right. Thanks, everybody. Hey, you want more Mac and Cheese? Mac and Cheese Music blog on YouTube at Brian at Mac and Cheese www.macandcheese.com and thank you anchor.fm for hosting this podcast take it away bruno we are far more sophisticated here at mac and cheese music than to bring in potty humor oh.